Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with us to Mark 1. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, really the first 15 verses and focusing on a few. Uh, I found in my study for this this past week that it was really hard to uh, zero in. There's so much here, which I think as we read through it will become apparent to you. And uh, I often do this. I make the mistake of having you sit down without thinking I'm going to have you immediately stand right back up. So if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word as it's found in Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask him to bless us as we look at it a little more deeply this morning. Uh, Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the word that is before us, the page. We're also grateful for Jesus the Son, who is the word made flesh, who makes you known to us in clear and wonderful ways. We pray that you, Lord Jesus, would be with us this morning, that we would see you, and as a result of seeing you, that our hearts would melt and the things that we have run after, which have, are so hurtful and horrible, uh, that we would desire them no longer, but instead we would pursue that which is holy and wholesome. Would you bless us? And would you be with us? And would you bless me? Oh, I'm, uh, it sounds trite to say I'm the chief of sinners. That would be wrong. I, I think it uh, more properly it would be to say I see my sin. It's much harder to see other people's. And so I pray that you would use me and that you would show me the glory of Christ that I may proclaim him to other sinners this morning. Bless us and be with us, we pray, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. 
when we first uh, moved to the villages, the first people we met uh, had very different views of the villages. Uh, one was a young man and his wife who, li- who grew up here in this area, and to be frank, they hated the villages. And the reason they hated the villages, they told us, is because they, their hunting land was gone, the pond where they fished was gone, their traffic patterns had changed, where they went to church changed. So, so many things had changed because the villages came in. And then there was another person that we met, not, you know, that same day, um, another young person, and he said, I love the villages. The villages have been the best thing for my family and me. My mom has a great job. My dad has a great job. I went to a great school. He went to the charter school, and I have now a great job upon graduation. And so we had two different people who were bringing ideas of the gospel uh, of, of, to Jesus with them, and, uh, of uh, the villages with them, and <laughs> it's, like, it's like, how highly do you think of the villages? It was a slip of the tongue. It was a slip of the tongue. So I knew where I was going. I just got there too quickly. Uh, and so as we come into Jesus' public ministry, uh, we're getting to a passage where he's ta- it's beginning to show that there's going to be a division in the way that people see Jesus because of what he's going to proclaim and what he's going to bring into Uh, the world. And so when Jesus came in, this was his message in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so there's the summary of his message. And what he's saying is, this is here. This is going to happen. I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to have a kingdom for myself. I'm going to rescue, even if there's some people who don't want what he's bringing. And this is what he's saying. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom's right here. It's right at the doorstep. It's going to happen. So there's baggage we bring. There are things that obscure our view, like the microphone I spoke about earlier. Things that keep us from seeing Jesus aright. And so as we begin this, mass, this, this passage and looking at it is... Uh, we're going to talk about three things. What has to happen in us, why it's important, or what it is. It's worded a little bit differently on your outlines and your bulletins, but you'll see how it all fits together. So, so what has to happen for us to be able to receive the message? Well, you have, to receive it, you have to change. There has to be a change that takes place within us. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, we read this. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that's how Mark records the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' call is not simply to say, the kingdom's here, start obeying the rules better. What he says is the kingdom is here, repent and believe the good news of the message. So he's going deeper than simply a change in behavior. So the word repent, is uh, there are at least two different Greek words for that in the original language. One actually just means to change your direction. So oftentimes we say you you turn from your sins, right? So you you turn away from something. And that typically looks more outward. You change your behavior, you change your lifestyle, there's an external change. The word that John uses here and the word that Jesus uses here is a different word. It's the word that can be translated as to think again, to rethink this altogether, To, to, to rethink it, to reject it, and then to replace it, right? So we're, we're rejecting, we're rethinking what we believe, and we're rejecting that, and we're replacing it with the gospel. We come to believe the gospel. And, and the reason we have to go through this process is because 
We have beliefs that are already in place that obscure our view of the gospel. We call that culture, right? Everybody was shaped by culture in some ways, a set of beliefs that came in from the outside. Without you trying to, it just happened to you. So culturally in the United States, we'll make a difference. We say there's a huge difference between boomers and millennials, Right. There's a huge difference in our outlook on the, on the world and how we're living. And some of you have grandkids and kids, and you're like, yep, we see that quite a bit. There's a difference between Americans and French. There's a difference between atheists and religions, uh, the religious. And we all have different assumptions about things that shape the way we view the world and the way that we approach uh, even topics when it comes to Jesus. Francis Schaeffer said this. Uh, he uh, he said, most people catch their presuppositions, that is their deeply held beliefs, their foundational beliefs. Most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way that a child catches the measles. But people with understanding realize that their presuppositions should be chosen after a careful consideration of which worldview is true. And so what this passage is showing is that Jesus is bringing in a truth that neither boomer nor millennials nor east or west nor Jew nor Gentile have any kind of claim to. This is a, a view that transcends that and challenges those things for us. See, what we believe determines what we're going to give our time to, our energy to, our efforts to. It, uh, we make plans. We use resources. We relate to people according to a cultural story. We see this all the time right now. Uh, who we oppose and who we celebrate is determined by what we believe about the world and so he's calling us to say, you've got this. It happened to you. It's going on beneath the surface of your life every day. And it's time to re-examine that so you can clear out all of these things so that you can see Jesus clearly. Let me give you an example, just like from this culture at this point. First century Judaism. Uh, so the first century Ju uh, uh, Israel was really uh, was beleaguered, was taken over by Rome. Rome was an occupying force. And so for people in the first century living in uh, Judea, one of the, their good news, what they wanted God to do for them, was to remove the Roman occupation, get rid of them. That's the good news. And so when they were looking to Jesus, when they were looking to a messianic figure, they were thinking, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to take power from Rome, and he's going to give us power. And so we're going to be able to step into the world and we're going to have the power instead of Rome having the power. So when they heard the idea of the good news of the kingdom of God, the thing that was in their head was Rome is going to be defeated. We're going to be in charge. We're going to have the power. And that was their good news. Now, the, where that affected the way they received Jesus is they were consumed with power, not just on the global scale, but also on the interpersonal scale. So they were Machiavellian. They were power players. They met behind closed doors. They made plans. And so when Jesus came into the world and people stopped listening to the Jewish leaders and started to follow after Jesus instead, they got angry. This guy's taking all the power for himself. And so what did they do? They opposed Jesus and eventually that led to his death. You see how that works? Is their understanding of the good news was completely shaped by their cultural moment. Or how about this? Uh, modern world. Uh, Expressive individualism. This is the predominant belief system in the West since the Enlightenment. It is so subtly a part of everything that we do in culture that some of you have never even heard that term before. Uh, 
You're not even aware that this is affecting you. Why? Because it's part of our cultural foundation. We don't know that we're affected by this, but you hear it all the time with phrases such as, uh, we should be able to do as we ought, as, long, as we want, follow our desires, follow our impulses, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. You've heard that kind of phrase, right? That's expressive individualism. All of us have been affected by it. Now, the way that that affects people is, and I've encountered this, I encountered this in college ministry for years, is when there's a young person who comes in, or anybody who comes in and has been affected by this, they think, I should be free to live the way that I want to live without any kind of constraints put on me by tradition or religion. And when they step into the gospel of Jesus Christ and they hear that Jesus forgives me, they think, this is fantastic. It's all by grace. God loves me. He's not going to ask anything of me. There's nothing I have to change. God just loves me. And then they start reading their Bible and they see Jesus talking about what we do with our body. And they read about Jesus talking, to, uh, read the scriptures talking about sexuality. And they say, wait, 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 wait. That's judgmental and that's not loving. And so oftentimes they'll say, I don't want anything to do with that form of Christianity. Now, the, the, it's true. God in his grace loves his people and we are saved apart from anything we do so that means that when God is telling us these things in scripture he's telling people that he loves in his grace this is the way you should live because anything else is going to be distorted but that's not the way they hear it the way that we hear it culturally is that's oppressive that's judgmental that's not loving so it's the cultural belief system that he's challenging he's saying you have to rethink that or how about this? The American dream. I grew up in the United States. I grew up with the American dream. Rebecca just gave me some statistic recently about the number of millionaires in the United States who started out at the poverty level. Do you remember what that was? 80% of millionaires came from a low-income background. Did you hear that? 80% of millionaires living in the United States came from low-income backgrounds to begin with. This is a place of prosperity, and so people can really make it and do a lot here. But the problem with that is that also creates expectations of the gospel and what the gospel is and, and, and obstacles to the gospel for people. Here's one. Here's, here's the expectation. I encounter, and probably you've encountered, people who are, would say, I was, I was a Christian for this part of my life. I prayed for God to do this. He didn't do it for me. And so I've just rejected all religion because that's part of the American dream is God is for my dreams if he loves me and I'm going to fulfill my dreams if he really loves me. But when we face obstacles and hardships in our life, especially when it's maybe physical or financial or somebody we love, then it makes it really hard for us to say, but isn't, if God loves me, wouldn't he do this for me? But the reality is there's a, there's a uh, guy I like to quote, Charles Spurgeon, and this is, uh, changing the quote a little bit, but basically the quote was saying that uh, adversity becomes a catalyst for deep faith in God. Prosperity more often becomes a cause of the failure of faith in a person's life. That often happens. As we become more prosperous, oftentimes we forget about the things of God because we're not having to lean upon Him as much. And so when we talk about the good news of the gospel, he's saying you have to repent. You have to look deep inside and say, what are the assumptions that I hold about the world? The things about me that when I look at God, he either frustrates me, makes me angry, there's some obstacle, or when he tells me to do something and obey, I just can't do it. I won't bring myself to do it because I don't trust 
it. I don't trust him enough to do it. So he's saying to repent and rethink. Um, and, you know, even people who, uh, the good news is not that he gives us what we think is good news. He gives us himself. Jesus is the good news. So in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, even, even us, even, you know, me, when you ask me what the gospel is, uh, because I'm a pastor, I will probably go into some theological thing, and I have to use my, my four and five syllable words. You know, I, I paid money to learn those words. And, uh, but when we talk about the gospel, it really, isn't, it really focuses in on one person. There's a guy named Carl Medeiros, and uh, he was uh, visiting a mission school at a large church, and he was teaching them about evangelism. And so he asked the students who were in the room, he said, tell me, what is the gospel? And somebody immediately shouted from the back, the free gift of God. And Carl said, that's fantastic. And he wrote it on the board. And then somebody else said, eternal life. And he said, all right, that's great. Keep going. And every time people would say something, he would write it on the board, eternal life, freedom, righteousness, moral purity. That's great. Uh, grace, unconditional love, healing and deliverance, redemption, faith in God, new life. So all these things he's writing on the board as people. And, and so pretty soon they have the whole chalkboard where it, he's probably in the 70s if he's using a chalkboard. So he's using a board. Uh, and it's filled with words. And he said, okay, what are we missing? What's not on the chalkboard up here? And so the group sat there for a minute in silence, uncomfortably silent. And then there was a second minute where everybody's just silent. He's waiting for somebody to answer. And this one young girl near the front raised her hand and said, how come none of us mentioned Jesus? And he said, exactly. And that was the end of the class. That was the end of the lesson. God's answer to the problems of our world is Jesus, and through Jesus comes all of the blessings. So uh, Jesus is giving us here the challenge to rethink. What do we think the gospel is? What do we think it means to walk with, with God? What, is it, what do we think it means to have a vibrant, deep relationship with God? Where does that come from, and how do we get that? Um, you know, it, people in the church, we have these assumptions about things. I was having a conversation with a guy at a coffee shop not too long ago, nobody in this room. I was just a guy I met. And uh, so you're not going, I bet that was him. It wasn't, it wasn't your husband. It wasn't him. Um, but there was a guy who, he said, a church, people need to find a church that teaches what they already believe. That's what people are looking for. And I thought, no, we need to find the church that properly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and helps you to delineate what that actually is. What is the good news? That's what we're looking for, right? So we come back to our passage here, and what Jesus is saying is we have this in his coming. This is what we've been waiting for. Mark 1, 14 to 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So God in, in the Old Testament made amazing promises about the future, a time when all wrongs would be made right by the divine seed of the woman uh, who was co whose coming was promised, prophesied, and prefigured throughout the whole New Old Testament. And Jesus is saying the time is now. The Son of God has come. Jesus has come to undo the sinister rebellion of Satan, to redeem the enslaved, to heal the broken, and to gather God's people into a family and a kingdom. And so, you know, that's very different than what some of us grew up with, where the Old Testament is really a collection of old, like hero stories, like Aesop's fable, fables, 
tend to read the Old Testament that way, disconnected stories, moral examples, moral laws, weird rituals, um, irrelevant places. But the whole message of the Old Testament is leading us to Jesus. So that when Jesus showed up, the Old Testament had been written, right? That had been written, and all of the promises, prophecies, offices, prophets, priests, ceremonies, laws, sacrifices, all built the backdrop for the story of Jesus. So think about it this way. Over Christmas, uh, uh, my wife was given a puzzle, um, and it's of a Parisian street scene. You know, it's a pretty, it's a fair-sized puzzle, and there are a lot of repetitive windows and those kinds of things in it, and there's some trees in it. And so because of the repetitive nature of parts of it, uh, I was constantly referring to the box. Right, okay, where does this piece, where does that piece go? There it is, right there. And, you know, it, we, one of my kids asked this afterwards. We'd put it together, and they said, what was your favorite part of the puzzle to put together? And uh, as I thought about it, I was like, that was a weird question. But then I thought, oh, I know exactly what section. This part with the tower, this part with the roof. Those are my two favorite parts to put together. And one person in my family even said, I, have a, I had a favorite piece of the puzzle. Because when I picked up this piece of the puzzle, I was like, it goes right here, boop, and just put it right in. That rarely happens, right, to, unless it's very clear where it goes. So... You're kind of like, he's just having a moment where he's just lost his mind here. I'm not. This is going somewhere. Is, uh, imagine getting a puzzle with no box and trying to put that thing together. That's the Old Testament. You've got a puzzle with all these pieces. And it might be, it might be easy to tell the outside pieces. They've all got a flat edge. But then when you start putting this together, you don't know exactly what it's going to be. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark has just held up the box. Here's the picture on the box. All of, I'm glad somebody said, oh, like that, that's good. Um, <laughs> is we look at the picture on the box, and whose picture is it? It's Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament was preparing us for the coming of this Savior, of this King, of this prophet, this priest, this person who was going to come and redeem and to save his people. His arrival was what the whole Old Testament was about. So it was, he calls it here, the fulfillment of the ages. Everything in the Old Testament was building towards it so that Jesus' ministry was not the establishment of something out of the blue, brand new, but it's the fulfillment of, the continuation of, and the expansion of the Old Testament story, the way that God intended it and promised it at first. And what Mark is giving us in these verses, and we can't really go into all of it, is he's given us a master class in Old Testament fulfillment. All the things that he talks about in these first 15 verses, he's given us the box, and he says, here are a bunch of the pieces. I'm going to put them together for you real quick. And uh, really all the Gospels accounts do that at the very beginning. But let me focus on two here. I can't cover them all, but let me focus on two here. The first one has to do with the baptism of Jesus. Um, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And this gives people pause because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so some people, when they see Jesus coming for baptism, they think, well, did Jesus commit a sin? Is there something he needs to be forgiven for? Is there something he needs to, be, he needs to repent of? What's going on with the baptism of Jesus? Um, well, so let me give you a little background. There, uh, baptism did not begin with John. 
and it did not begin with Christians. Baptism was something that Jews would often practice. In fact, by the time John is baptizing here in the wilderness, it was a practice of people who were converting from some other religion to Judaism to be baptized, and also the men would be circumcised. So they practiced this in the Old Testament uh, before the coming of John. But Jesus is still not coming for John's baptism the way we think about it where it's about repentance for sins because Jesus doesn't need forgiveness and he's not repenting of anything. So what are we, what's going on with this? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, which is a parallel passage to this, Matthew goes into a little more detail about it. And what John says to Jesus when Jesus comes to be baptized is, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. He's saying this is backwards. There's nothing you need to repent of. There's no sin in your life. I need to be baptized by you. You shouldn't be coming to me. And Jesus says, no, this needs to take place to fulfill all righteousness. So what did Jesus mean? It's clear he's not coming for a baptism of repentance. What's, what's going on? Well, in Exodus 40, there's something that gives us the background on it. In Exodus 40, we read that Moses, the Old Testament prophet, baptized Aaron when Aaron was stepping into the position of the high priest. And then he anointed him with oil. And so John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, is washing and baptizing the high priest. And he's not anointing him with oil. The oil symbolizes the coming on the person of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what's going on is, Jesus is for Jesus, baptism is not about repentance. It's the inauguration of his mission. At this point... He took on the mantle of his mission. His earthly ministry began. So John the Baptist, as the last prophet of the Old Testament, washed the new high priest. And so Jesus came to the place of sinner's repentance and received anointing to be the priest who intercedes for the penitent. Later John says, not here, but in in John's gospel, it's recorded. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the high priest. And that's what this is about. And then the Jordan River. That's about a lot of other things, but that clearly, or maybe not so clearly, but it's there. Um, The Jordan River, why the Jordan River? Um, Most of us, when we think about the Jordan River, we think about um, that's where John the Baptist baptized, and that's where Jesus was baptized. But it has an Old Testament beginning. If you read, remember the story of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, they crossed to the Red Sea, and it was parted for them. Remember that? Well, after that whole thing, they, uh, they rebelled against the Lord. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then when it was time for them to enter into the promised land, there was another parting of a body of water. This time it was the Jordan River. And the way that that took place, uh, you can read about it um, again in the Old Testament, is um, beginning of Joshua, is the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant And when the priest set foot into the Jordan River, that's when the water stopped. And it was backed up uh, miles away. So as long as the priest stood into the river, uh, stood in the Jordan River, there was a highway for God's people so that they could cross into the promised land. And isn't that a great image of Jesus opening, dividing the water, uh, opening the barrier that's keeping us from the promised land? It's the priest. 
So Jesus is anointed the priest. Jesus is the one who enables us to enter into the promised land. Just as Israel crossed through the Jordan in the promised land, so did Jesus enter into the Jordan on our behalf. He's the way for us to enter into the promised land. And so everything in the Old Testament is somehow preparing the way for Jesus, foreshadowing types and shadows, the way that Hebrews talks about it, uh, preparing these offices of prophet, priest, and king, which Jesus fulfilled all of them, being the sacrifice, being the temple, all of these things to show us that Jesus was doing all the things that were, we, we failed to do in the Old Test Testament. He's succeeding in every single one. He was the prophet, he was the priest, he was the king, he was to come. So the kingdom of heaven, uh, he says, is part of the good news. It's the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. So the kingdom of God is, what is the kingdom of God? Um, probably one of the best descriptions of it is in Romans where it says the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's wherever God reigns, which is really over everything, and where he brings his peace and righteousness and joy into the lives of uh, his people. Well, the when he says the kingdom is at hand or near in time, the Jews kind of had a similar understanding to us with our apocalyptic literature. Uh, they kind of thought about this kind of apocalyptic, cataclysmic end in which everything immediately changed. But when Jesus shows up and he's saying the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying something a little bit different because they didn't expect the great king God himself to take on flesh and enter our misery with us as one of us. He wrote himself into the story. They thought the story's going to end, he's going to come back. They didn't expect God to write in himself into the story and to be our savior. So he wrote himself into it. And when, what his people endured, he endured. But what they failed to do, he overcame. And I think that's why here, when he says the kingdom of heaven is, or kingdom of God is at hand, I think that's, he's being intentionally precise. He's saying it's near. It hasn't fully come, but it's near because the king has come and there's something different than the Old Testament. So it's right here at our doorstep. But at the same time, it's not come fully the way that it will at one point in the future. So in the Old Testament, they looked at the coming of the Messiah and they, the Christ and they thought this is going to be a one-time event. Everything's going to change. And so there's this, there is this, yeah, this, this was worth the price of admission to seminary for me. Um, prophetic foreshortening. You can write that one down, right? Prophetic foreshortening. It's, it sounds like, like Crisco or something, but it's not. Okay, so what it's getting at is when you look at a mountain chain, which we don't have here in Florida, but when you look at a mountain chain, you've got these mountains that are huge, and they both look like they're side by side, but the closer you get to them, you realize there are miles and miles separating these two things. So in the Old Testament, when they're looking at the coming of the Messiah, they're not seeing one event, they're seeing a couple of events. So the first event is the coming of Jesus during the first century to redeem his people. And then the second event, which is way off in the future, which is also future for us, is the return of Jesus to set everything right. That's called prophetic foreshortening because you can't really tell how much space there is between these two things. And so what that means is you and I, live in the in-between time between Jesus when he came first and when Jesus comes again. And during this time period, we don't experience the world being fully made whole the way that it will be someday, one day when Jesus comes back. But what we experience now is full forgiveness of sins. We have that. 
the love of the Father right now, the, the intercession of Jesus at the Father's right hand, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, we still have brokenness, we still have problems because we're still in the in-between times and everything hasn't been repaired and, and uh, renewed yet, but someday it will, and we're in that in-between time. So what that means for God's people who are in the in-between times is that we have, um, we, are, we are safe in Christ during this time period. Even though the world's fallen and broken and we still sin and we're still broken, we're safe in Christ because our salvation is not about what we do for God. Our salvation is about what God has done for us in Jesus. The gospel is not a set of rules to keep to be safe, the gospel is an announcement that in Jesus Christ, God has redeemed us and we are safe before him because of Jesus. All of our sins are paid for. We're not safe because we hold on to Jesus, but because Jesus holds on to us. So Jesus stood for us in our sin so that we can stand before God without sin, to be holy and righteous and pure in God's sight. And so what he's calling us to do here is to repent, to believe, to return, and in doing so, everything is forgiven. Repentance is not simply looking at your bad behavior and turning from it. Repentance is, in this case, is uh, looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ and saying, this is the only way that I can be saved. And I trust that God has really done it. He really has paid it for me. Jesus really has conquered death for me. Jesus really has come forth from the tomb to show that my sin has been paid for fully and completely once before, once for all time before I stand in the presence of God. Now, I've gotten to the point where I really love conversion stories. I love to hear how people came to faith in Jesus. If I sit down for coffee with you, I'm probably eventually going to hear that. And I've asked several of you your stories, which have been really uh, encouraging for me to hear. I read one this past week from a guy named Thomas Terrence. And uh, I think it puts some of these things in perspective. So he grew up in uh, Mobile, Alabama, and he came of age during the 1960s in the South. Uh, and so there was a lot of, and he, he said in his story, there was a lot of fear in the South about racial issues that were taking place. And so uh, he grew up in a church, and it was part of life in the church as well. There was a big division between black and white people in the church. And... Uh, he had some issues with his dad and all kinds of things which led him to be radicalized in his late teens, early 20s. And so he became a part of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, so in his early 20s, he and an accomplice went to the home of a Jewish businessman in a, in a town in Mississippi and were going to blow up his house. And so while they're there with planting the bomb, the police showed up. It was some sort of sting operation. And his accomplice, who was a young female school teacher, was shot and killed. He was shot four times at close range with a shotgun. So they didn't think he was going to live past 45 minutes. But in his story, he said, God was faithful. So he went to the hospital. He lived. He was sentenced uh, to jail uh, to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. So six months after getting into the penitentiary, he and two other guys escaped. Now, in the past several months, I've told two stories about people escaping from prison. I'm like, that's always a bad idea, y'all. Just If you're there, just stay there. 
So a couple of days later, they were apprehended in a blazing gunfight. And one of the guys with them, the guy who had been on lookout, he was shot and killed. So they came and took Terrence and the other guy, and he's has nine more years added to his sentence. And this time he's in maximum security. And to keep himself from going crazy, he said he read continuously all these things, philosophy, everything. And finally he started to read the Bible, particularly the Gospels, the story of the life of Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, I had, I had attended church and Sunday school until my early teens and was baptized. I believed I was saved and would go to heaven when I died. Of course, the truth was just the opposite. What's he got? He's got something in his mind and his heart that is obscuring Jesus for him. This is what Christianity looks like. It looks like what I've grown up with. It works, looks like what my church has taught me. It looks like all of these things, and it's obscuring the true gospel for him. So he continues reading the Bible. And uh, he said... Uh, at one point, he's reading, and it's like God is there with him. The next morning, he said, I awoke. He, he repented. He believed. He prayed a prayer for Jesus to forgive him, to take over his life, to do whatever he wanted to do with his life, for Jesus to do whatever he wanted to do with his life. And he says, I repented and believed the gospel. And he said, and I hungered after God after that. I read my Bible all the time. He said, I developed friendships with, other black, with black men in the prison. He said, the FBI agent who had initially arrested him. He said, I became friends with him. The Jewish lawyer who had helped the FBI agent convict him, he became friends with him. And he said, part of the, wel the welcoming for him, like coming into the kingdom of God and accepting that forgiveness is to realize, I'm still pretty messed up as a person. He said, it took years for him to take some of these things that were just engraved into his heart, that were obscuring the blessings of God in his life and the growth in his life. It took years to work those things out for him. And he said, after serving eight years in prison, he said he, a parole was granted for him to attend university. And so he went to university, that, and that set in, uh, motion in, set in motion a series of developments, which over the next 40 years led him into campus ministry, led him into pastoral ministry, and finally, to a long ministry of teaching, discipling, spiritual mentoring, and writing at the C.S. Lewis Institute. This is this guy's story. And the reality is, in some ways, this is all of our stories. We're broken people who have this idea about who God is, whether I need him or don't need him. And even when I think I need him, there's something obscuring that. And what he's calling us to do in this passage is say, I need to go back to square one and say, what I have is Jesus, and that's where I'm going to start, and I'm going to try to get rid of all the baggage, all the stuff that's obscuring that, and follow him fully and completely. This is how uh, he ended his, this is how uh, Thomas ended his statement. He said, as I look back over the nearly 50 years since God saved me, I can only thank and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved, but because he is full of grace and mercy, he gave me exactly what I needed. Isn't that great? So if you're a Christian here, um, don't be afraid of rethinking what you think the, Christ, the Christianity is about. There's some, there are some definite points where you say, this is something not to give up on. But you've got things that are obscuring your view of Jesus that are keeping you from really uh, enjoying the benefits of the gospel in your life. And if you're somebody here this morning who is asking questions, who's seeking um, what he's calling you to do and asking you to do and what I would ask you to do is to re-examine 
the cultural things in your life that may be keeping you from saying, I need Jesus. Jesus is, he's, he's what the world's been waiting for. He's what I need. And he tells me to repent and believe and that full forgiveness is mine when I come to believe and a new life and a new family. Let me pray for us. I can remember when uh, Thomas's experience happened for me. I wasn't as old as he was. I wasn't in the situation he was in. But the light that shone upon me at that point, the light of the countenance of Christ, was life-changing. And you've been faithful ever since. And if I opened my eyes and looked around this room right now, I could see people who are nodding along with that same experience of having you step into our lives for the first time. And I can remember a time 15 years ago when that light shone again in a strange and wonderful way and you did some amazing work in my heart and life. And 10 years ago and five years ago and in the past couple of years, thank you that you walk with us. Thank you for the blessings that are ours. Help us to notice and recognize the things that obscure, kind of eclipse the light of your countenance upon us. And we pray that you would enable us to walk in faith, believing just as you say here. Help us to repent. Help us to believe the good news of the gospel. Not to intermingle it with other things. Uh, not to uh, sully it or stain it or distort it. But instead to believe it and let it be the life-shaping truth, the life-shaping belief of everything about us. Bless us and be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.